Hey, y'all. So we left off with Job's fourth friend, the cotton-eyed Joe friend named Elihu, where we don't know where he came from or where he goes, but he did say hey. So then God steps up to the plate. And God is like, mm, let me speak at this point. I've heard enough from all y'all. And he starts out with, in chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And in the original context of this, it's um, Yahweh, and it's an intimate, intimate um, name. For God. It's very intimate and personal. So it says, Then Yahweh answered Job from the whirlwind. He's answering him from the middle of a big, huge, stormy wind. He comes onto the scene, blows his way in, and he says in verse 2, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them. So he establishes who he is and everything else is secondary to that. And in verse 4, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries and as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it in the cl- with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, This far and no farther will you come. Hear your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me all about it if you know. Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. So it's interesting, he leads with, he establishes that he is God, and he takes Job on this virtual tour of the world and the details of it. Things we can see with our own eyes, but we don't understand the huge depth and reality of how big and vast it is. But God does. Job's view of the world is very limited by just having our human eye experience. But God, he asks, would you like to run the world with your own limited view of justice? 
Would you like to take control of this entire world and this entire universe? And we see a little bit of sarcasm, kind of like Job did to his friends when he was responding to his friends. He gets a little sarcastic here. And he, he essentially, he puts Job in his place. Who are you, the creator of the world? And let's go on and see what he says next in verse 22. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? I have reserved them as weapons for times of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up? Does the rain have a father? Who gives birth to the dew? Who is the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? For the water turns to ice as hard as rock, and the surface of the water freezes. Can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of Pleiades, or loosen the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons, or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven? When the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clods, can you stock prey for a lioness and satisfy the young lion's appetites as they lie in their dens or crouch in the thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when their young cry out to God and wander about in hunger? In verse or chapter thirty-nine, verse one, he continues, "Do you know when the wild goats give birth?" Have you watched as deer are born in the wild? Do you know how many months they carry their young? Are you aware of the time of their delivery? They crouch down to give birth to their young and deliver their offspring. Their young grow up in the open fields, then leave home and never return. Who gives the wild donkey its freedom? Who untied its ropes? I have placed it in the wilderness. Its home is the wasteland. It hates the noise of the city and has no driver to shout at it. The mountains are its pasture land, where it searches for every blade of grass. Will the wild ox consent to being tamed? Will it spend the night in your stall? Interesting here, the original Hebrew translation says um, unicorn instead of ox, and it's basically a symbol of a very strong animal. And um not i don't doubt that there were unicorns i mean just think about how many animals have single horns on their heads there's the rhinoceros off the top of my head there's lots so why couldn't have there been a unicorn i don't know i don't know for sure i don't know the answers to any of that but it's i just find it fascinating that it is in the original hebrew context it does say unicorn and it was loosely translated to ox as being like a strong animal um, so we'll read that again. Verse 9. Will the wild ox consent to being tamed? Will it spend the night in your stall? Can you hitch a wild ox to a plow? Will it plow your field for you? Given its strength, can you trust it? Can you leave and trust the ox to do your work? 
Can you rely on it to bring home your grain and deliver it to your threshing floor? The ostrich flaps her wings grandly, but they are no match for the feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the top of the earth, letting them be warmed in the dust. She doesn't worry that a foot might crush them or a wild animal might destroy them. She is harsh toward her young as if they were not even her own. She doesn't care if they die, for God has deprived her of wisdom. He has given her no understanding. So here he's saying, even wisdom, all of wisdom, every wise thing we know and understand comes directly from God. In verse 18, when, but whenever she jumps up to run, she passes the swiftest horse with its rider. Have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Did you give it ability to leap like a locust? Its majestic snorting is terrifying. It paws the earth and rejoices in its strength when it charges out to battle. It laughs at fear and is unafraid. It does not run from the sword. The arrows rattle against it and the spear and javelin flash. It paws the ground fiercely and rushes forward into battle when the ram's horn blows. It snorts at the sound of the horn. It senses the battle in the distance. It quivers at the captain's commands and the noise of battle. Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle rises to the heights to make its nest? It lives on the cliffs, making its home on a distant rocky crag. From there it hunts its prey, keeping watch with piercing eyes. Its young gulp down blood where there's a carcass. There you'll find it. In chapter 40, then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? Are you God's critic? But do you have the answers? And then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. So here God is bringing humility to Job. He is surrendering to God and knows that God is above all. In verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job again from that big mighty whirlwind. In verse 7, Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like this? And I imagine he's just thundering these words from that storm cloud. Verse 10. All right, put on your glory and splendor, your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then even I would praise you, for your own strength would save you. Look at the behemoth which I made, just as I made you. It eats grass like an ox. See its powerful loins and the muscles of its belly. Its tail is as strong as a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are knit tightly together. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs are bars of iron. It is a prime example of God's handiwork, and only its creator can threaten it. The mountains offer it, offer it their best food, where all the wild animals play. It lies under the lotus plants, hidden by the reeds in the marsh. The lotus plants give it shade among the willows beside the stream. 
It is not disturbed by the raging river, not concerned by the swelling Jordan as it rushes around it. No one can watch it off guard or put a ring in its nose and lead it away. So the behemoth, I always say that wrong. It's a big, huge land monster primarily. It can go in the water, but it primarily lives in the land. And it was this huge, huge creature. And... Um, not to get ahead, but in chapter 41, he's going to bring talk about the Levithian, which is primarily a sea monster, but both are super huge. And it's two beasts that live in our world. They're not dangerous, or they're dangerous, but not evil. They're not necessarily evil, but they are very dangerous. And they're a part of his good world. And they represent the fact that there is disorder and danger present in today's world. The world is amazing and good, but not entirely safe or perfect. It's got order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous. And um, from Job's point of view, God is not just, but God's perspective is infinitely bigger and is dynamically interacting interacting with the whole universe. And when he makes decisions, he does so in his wisdom. And Job quickly realizes how ignorant he's been in of God's power and how huge God is. And he humbly makes that just one quick, simple response to God, repenting of his insistence that he was repeat, being treated unjustly. And God does respond to that in reference to bringing humility to the proud. And that's exactly what he did for Job here. And Job can't even completely comprehend all of God's huge majesty, even if he wanted to, um, which leaves him in a huge place of humility. And he is just very humbled by everything that God is saying and bringing forth. And so he continues in chapter 41. Can you catch Levithian with a hook or put a noose around its jaw? Can you tie it with a rope through the nose or pierce its jaw with a spike? Will it beg you for mercy or implore you for pity? Will it agree to work for you, to be your slave for life? Can you make a pet like a bird or give it to your little girls to play with? Will merchants try to buy it to sell their shop in their shops? Will its hide be hurt by spears or its head by harpoon? If you lay a hand on it, you will certainly remember the battle that follows. You won't try that again. No, it is useless to try to capture it. The hunter who attempts it will be knocked down. And since no one dares to disturb it, who then can stand up to me? Who has given me anything that I need to pay back? Everything under heaven is mine. I want to emphasize Levithian's limbs and its enormous strength and graceful form. Who can strip off its head, and who can penetrate its double layer of armor? Who could pry open its jaws, for its teeth are terrible? The scales on its back are like rows of shields, tightly sealed together. They are so close together that no air can even get between them. Each scale sticks tight to the next. They interlock and cannot be penetrated. When it sneezes, it flashes light. Its eyes are like red of dawn. Lightning leaps from its mouth. Flames of fire flash out. He's basically describing a fire-breathing dragon here. Smoke streams from its nostrils, like steam from a pot heated over burning rushes. 
Its breath would kindle coals, for flames shoot from its mouth. The tremendous strength in Leviathan's neck strikes terror wherever it goes. Its flesh is hard and firm and cannot be penetrated. Its heart is hard as a rock, hard as a milestone. When it rises, the mighty are afraid, gripped by terror. No sword can stop it, no spear, dart, or javelin. Iron is nothing but straw to that creature, and bronze is like rotten wood. Arrows cannot make it flee. Stones shot from a sling are like bits of grass. Clubs are like a blade of grass, and it laughs at the swish of the javelins. Its belly is covered with scales as sharp as glass. It plows up the ground as it drags through the mud. Leviathan makes the water boil with its commotion. It stirs the depths like a pot of ointment. The water glistens in its wake making the sea look white. Nothing on earth is its equal. No other creature so fearless of all the creatures. It is the proudest. It is the king of beasts. Um, In 42, Job responds to the Lord. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take everything back that I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. So this trial that he was put forth, it did bring repentance and humility, and he he can't comprehend this huge greatness of God. And um, he, he is brought straight to humility and in um, conclusion the lord answers in response after the lord had finished speaking to job he said to eliphaz the tamanite i am angry with you and your two friends for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant job has so take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves my servant job will pray for you and i will accept his prayer on your behalf I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamite did as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So he's not going to punish them as they deserve, but he is asking Job to pray for them. Job is very angry at his friends right now, and his request for Job is to pray for them. And this brings forth forgiveness. He needs to pray to forgive them. In verse 10, when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. And this is what brought restoration into Job's life, bringing forth that forgiveness that was needed and praying earnestly for his friends, brought back his fortunes. Everything was restored. It brought the restoration. Um, In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. 
In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died an old man who had lived a long, full life. So a couple things here. The forgiveness is what helped bring that restoration, the forgiveness and the prayer to God for his friends. And God restores double all that he lost. Losing everything wasn't a punishment for anything at all. And getting it back was not a reward. It was simply a gift from God. That's it. There was no punishment or reward. It was just a gift for God, from God, like blessing him and bringing forth blessing. And another thing is daughters are rarely named in gene- genealogies during this time. This is extraordinarily rare. And women are not usually granted an inheritance. It was unheard of in those days. So that's how greatly Job was humbled. He he knows that no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God and trust in God's wisdom. And that God has a whole universal pointage view, a whole view, universal vantage point. He knows what he's doing. And why is there suffering? Job never actually learned why he suffered, but he's able to live in peace and fear of the Lord because he was able to see God's greatness. God does never explain. He never explains why. We live in an amazing, complex world in that in in this stage, we're we're between two perfect gardens. It's not a, a an earth is not designed to prevent suffering. The perfect garden was made at the beginning and our end the end, it's going to be a restored perfect garden again. Right now we're in the in-between. Job's friends were mostly wrong with a few true points, and they should have stayed silent. And Job was mostly right, and God approved of his honesty and his desire to seek God himself on everything he was suffering through. So in basically conclusion of the book of Job, We can trust in God's wisdom in suffering rather than trying to figure out the reasons why it's happening. We can simply trust God and rely on God and have faith that God will help bring us through the suffering. And we can bring our pain and grief and God to to God. And he can, he knows what he's doing and he cares. And we can be honest with God if we're struggling and cry out to him. He knows anyhow. So we can be honest and just have real conversations and talk to God truly. And that's what God wants is true relationship, heart to heart relationship. So that concludes the very um, up and down book of Job. I hope you enjoyed the story and I hope you got a lot out of the book of Job. There is so much in there. Um, and I know God will keep revealing me to me more as I continue to read through it because it seems like I see more and more every time I reread, which is how awesome and amazing God is. I hope you all are having a most wonderful day.